Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we get to welcome the incredible CJ Graham, Army veteran, actor, a very successful businessman. Uh, CJ, awesome to have you on here today. Hey, thanks, John, for having me. I really appreciate it. So uh, before we uh, hit record here, one of the things we were talking about, which is why I wanted to start off here, uh, outside the convention idea of you meeting fans and all stuff, which we'll talk about, you also run very successful business stuff like casinos and stuff like that. How has the last couple of years been and how excited are you to see stuff start opening up again? Well, I've been very fortunate as a result. Um, unfortunately for me, I was able to retire five years ago. So uh, when the pandemic, the epidemic hit, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have to deal with it. I would just call down to the local store and order my food and pick it up in the trunk of my car. Um, I have a lot of associates that are still in the industry that really had to work through it. Um, but I, you know what, I was fortunate. Uh, but I did deal with back in 2006 and seven when we had the upside down housing market, we had to start letting people go and going by seniority and making some modifications to our payroll systems. But I was real fortunate, uh, as you indicated, I ran two casino resorts as a chief operating officer, general manager. So I had give or take 2,500 employees at any given day. So I, I was fortunate in the industry. I did it for about 28 years. One of the interesting things about you, and again, we will talk about what you, how you got into that line of work, but with you starting, like, how did you get kind of from your childhood, your upbringing to the military, like what inspired you to kind of jump into the army lifestyle for those four years? Yeah, it was a judge. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I went in the military 48 years ago, so I'm a Vietnam era vet. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have a father, unfortunately. I'm one of those people, but I, I stood up proud. I mean, he died when I was three. So at about 17, I had some challenges, maybe some authoritative challenges. And uh, I made a decision to go in the military uh, to the infantry and never looked back. And it's been a foundation of stabilization for me, integrity and uh, leadership all those years. It's, it's one of those things too, where I've, I've had the pleasure of having Michael Bailey Smith on here, uh, Rob Mello from the Happy Death Day series. And the interesting thing I've always found, the actors that have served in the military, whether it's Army, Marine Corps, whatever it is, there's something very distinct about you gentlemen. And it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing too, because I think in your industry of the entertainment world, the ideas of the stuff you talked about, like honor, integrity, and stuff like that, it stands out for those that actually served. And if you could kind of speak upon how important that most type of virtues and stuff is important in your daily life, especially when you're working in the industry actively. Yeah, you know, I, I believe that if you're a good leader, you know, you've done something in your background that's made you understand that you've worked at all the levels of the lower employment. I don't care if you've been a dishwasher, a valet, a dealer, or just a vice president, you know, when you're walking around. Um, I used to take and go into my teams uh, every three, four months, put a wardrobe on, a uniform on, and I used to clean toilets. And I go down there and deal cards, and I go down there and walk security around and do valet. Uh, just because I wanted them to know the equality that, yes, my paycheck is a different size. My headaches are bigger, you know, so I have an investment in uh, Advil. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm just like them. And um, 
leadership is hard. It takes time and patience. Dictatorship is easy. Anybody can be a dick. Um, so to me, get down there, shake some hands and let them know who you are as a person and help advance their careers as much as you can. You're kind of like undercover boss before undercover boss. I like that. Yeah, I, I really do believe that if you don't know what's going on, on the floor, if you don't go down into the hotel rooms and talk to your your uh, mates and the people working that, you know, that's nice. You're doing the job numerically. Um, you're looking at the algorithms. You're looking at the statistics and the numbers. That's good. But are you leading? Are you asking that dishwasher what they want to do uh, besides worse dishes? And when they tell you they want to get in to be a waiter or a waitress, then help them. Get them over to, you know, to the vice president of human resources and see what we can do to get them into, you know, bussing tables and learn how to take orders. Is it interesting for you when, you, when you're in that role in front of people versus when, say, you're in a convention uh, with fans, like now you're on the other side of the service industry. Like, is that a weird change for you when you have to flip back and forth? Fortunately not for me. And I, I can't speak for others, but I understand both sides of the coin. You know, since I've been on that side of the coin, when I get to the, the, the conventions and I see the fans and they ask me a question, and you know what, maybe I've heard the question a thousand times, maybe 2000 times. However, for that, for that person, it's the very first time they've asked the question, the very first time they've heard the answer. So I really enjoy talking to the fans. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you, John, if it wasn't for the fans. Um, so again, kind of going back to remember where you came from and the, who got you here. And those fans, that fan base that's for the Friday the 13th series, uh, that franchise has grown tremendously because of the fans. Yes, and we are going to talk about that for sure. When after the military, uh, the transition from the military life to civ back to civilian life, what was that like for you? And kind of was that as soon as you got the army, did you jump right into the nightclub scene from there? Not exactly. When I I was a sergeant when I got out of the infantry, uh, we were very short-handed with E7s. Uh, so as a staff sergeant, uh, first sergeant, you know, we didn't have those. They had all gotten out as NAM had come to an end. Uh, the conflict of Vietnam, you may recall, is from 1959 to 75. And as that campaign came to a close, a lot of those E6s and 7s, as soon as they got home, they got out. Uh, so I was a platoon sergeant with about 35-ish soldiers, four platoons. I learned a little bit about leadership beyond my pay grade. When I got out though, uh, true story, and I always laugh because my first job when I got out was, uh, you know those porta potties at the job sites, the ones that we used to tip over yes. when we were kids? I used to deliver those and I used to clean them and suck them out. And we had a saying because people would laugh and I used to say, oh, you clean out shit toilets. Hey, 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 don't laugh because your shit was our bread and butter. So true saying, that was my first job after I got out of the military, hauling those around. And then I migrated from there, of course. I headed up into the uh, gaming industry and I decided after about four or five years in the gaming industry, I want to take a look at LA, Los Angeles. That entrepreneurship of yours, is that something that you kind of helped, the Army helped exacerbate like your feelings towards that? Like, it seems like you've always had this idea, especially as you transgressed and got into the industry, that you want to be a leader and really push yourself. Is that something that the army instilled further into you or something you really loved and wanted to go as high as you could in that world? It gave me an opportunity to express it. When you go in, you're just a private E1 and you've got sergeants around you and you've got corporals and you kind of define who you are at that point. I want to be a leader because I think I can do as good a job in some cases, maybe better. Um, so my goal was to always to grow. And of course, there's always that opportunity for a higher paycheck. 
Um, so getting through the military and coming out from starting as an E1 and getting out as a sergeant, that did give me um, inspiration that I wanted to grow up the ranks or whatever I did. Again, you know, I, I've always told my children, I don't care if they work at 7-Eleven. As long as they're happy and they can support their family, that's all I care about. Um, me, I really looked at it from a monetary perspective of what I wanted to do. And I put some of an equal level. I, um, you know, I've come with a high school diploma. Um, I have an honorable discharge from the military and I have a PhD in common sense. So I apply that PhD <laughs> yeah. every day. As you, at the, what I find very interesting is before we get the Jason Voorhees part, you were actually playing the character as kind of like this little character in this little nightclub area you were working at. As that is, I mean, how talk about, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a firm believer that you have to put yourself in position to be seen and there is some luck when it comes to what we accomplish in life and who you know. But could you ever have imagined that two people from a film production company or whatever would see you doing that and be like, you know what, he could be the next Jason? Yeah, you know, if, uh, let's just jump uh, after I did a little stint in the gaming industry in Reno. I went to L.A. and I've always worked two jobs. I worked uh, doing something in the daytime uh, and three hours, four hours a night running uh, as a nightclub as a bouncer, a doorman. And I always knew as a bouncer, a doorman, that would make my car payment, my car insurance. And then my 40 hour week job would pay my bills. So that's how I looked at things and balanced my monetary need for the lifestyle I wanted. Um, I ended up being the general manager of a nightclub, uh, 18,000 square feet, good size club. And we had a hypnotist on Thursday nights. And all of a sudden he brought in a production company because he wanted to shoot his show to try to expand his horizon. Uh, the show that company came in was called Real Effects, R-E-E-L, Real Effects. And I didn't know that they were the special effects people on part four, Friday the 13th with Mr. Ted White. So they just made an idea to the hypnotist about putting a Jason character in wardrobe and coming through the back of the screen when the subjects were on the stage. And they said, let's put CJ's big butt in it. You know, he's about the same size as Ted. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean that uh, sometimes luck does prevail. However, once you get the job, you have to deliver, don't forget. Um, and in this case, I think I was fortunate we delivered. And I, and I, and I think the first... Friday the 13th, I think, obviously is iconic. and But it wasn't until the sixth one, Jason Liz, that you jumped in there, where I felt like that series really jumped to the point where it is today. Like, it, it started the process of this iconic character. And you, the way it's almost like a zombie Jason, where it's very, just how you portrayal the movements and all that stuff. And what I love about it is you had really no experience acting before that. And you also had no experience doing the stunt work, like the underwater stuff and the fire stuff. And how you're able to pull that off as a first role for you is just, it blows my mind. Yeah, I, I, I've never done a stunt in my life or been on a, a movie set. It wasn't my dream. I had actually entertained LAPD or the Sheriff's Department uh, when I went down there originally. Um, to fall into it and to be fortunate enough, um, I did not know what an SAG, say Actors Guild card was. Right. Um, they put me in wardrobe. I had to go down to Paramount Studios and meet Frank Mancuso Jr. a couple times. And of course, Tom McLaughlin, the writer, the director, and the stuntman. Um, at the point where, you know, once I was given the film, they called me on a Friday. They decided originally, to be fair, to go with another gentleman who's a, a stuntman at the time. Um, and they put one day where they had a daily, and it's still in the film, actually. There's a scene where uh, the paintballs hit the midsection. And most people just say, well, are you wearing padding? You're a little thicker. There's a different gentleman. He was a little thicker than I and just didn't portray what they were looking for. 
Um, so he was released after that and I was brought in to finish it. Um, doing the stunts, you know, you, I, I was pretty young, obviously. I'd only been on the military a few years, um, reasonably physical fit, obviously. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, when they put me on fire, I didn't think anything of it. When I was 20 feet underwater, breathing off a regulator, chained down to the bottom of an Olympic-sized swimming pool at USC, I didn't think anything about it. Two things. Number one, they were paying me. <laughs> so I was like, how much? Oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> and secondarily, every time they want to do another take, they said, we have to pay you again. I said, really? Well, you do as many takes as you'd like. <laughs> so it was fun going through walls, going through doors, getting shot, cables being hooked onto my back. Um, you know, today, you know, I, I, in those days, I could tuck and roll. Today, when I hit the ground, when I fall off my horse, I go thump. So I don't think it'd be as much fun right now. When it came to the violence of that movie, did anything, into, when you put that mask on for the first time or when you're on screen, did the, the previous life in the army with any violence you saw, did that kind of seep through into that character, how you perceived Jason uh, in terms of the violence? Yeah, well, you know, I went ahead and took a look at part four and part three just to get a gauge. Uh, Tom McLaughlin was very clear. He was looking to portray a little differently. He was looking more for a launching platform uh, after part five that maybe part six would give it some life, some feet, yeah. some wheels. Um, so he was very clear what he was looking for. Uh, the cool thing for me is, you know, coming out of the military a few years before, I, I, I am 6'3", 250. Even today, I'm 6'3", 250. Um, you learn to walk a little differently than most people because you're already oversized, you're big. Uh, and people do recognize you when you come in a room because you're big. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, it is what it is. You get used to that representation. So once I put the wardrobe on, uh, the character just naturally comes to anybody. And I mean that. I, I don't care if you're 5'6", if you're 6'5". Uh, you put that wardrobe on, you put that mask on. And for those that are listening that have done it, it just naturally takes over. You become Jason. Uh, you stop talking. You just look at people. You tilt your head a little bit. And it's a character that anybody, once they put the mask on, they really do step into the role 100%. We, uh, I had Tom Matthews on here last year and talking about the movie and stuff. And it's so cool. Like like you, there's such a passion when it came to this, this, this movie. And it was really cool hearing him be like, oh, man, CJ and the cast. Like, when you guys see each other at these conventions, it must be really cool to kind of be like, man, like, it's like, how cool is it to see, see each other and be like, yeah, we, we create something really cool that the horror fan base really seems to enjoy even more so today. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you do a film, and again, my first film, so, I, you know, I, I didn't really understand much of it. I was just doing my job, so to speak. Every time I got a mission, I finished it and went back to my trailer. Uh, Tom Matthews, being the expert he is, and uh, Darcy and the other Tom, everybody yeah. really, that was their world. They knew what they were doing in and out. The honor for me is that I was able to deliver a product of, of good perspective for them so I didn't make them look bad. That makes me happy. However, what the cool part is, we're talking about this three decades later, and I have the honor of seeing Tom Matthews, Tom Finley, yes. I get to see Darcy DeMoss, Tom uh, McLaughlin, Alice Cooper, still today, and we all have very positive attitudes about it, and honored, I, I use that word, honored, that we did a product that people are still talking about it three decades later. Is there a favorite kill of yours in that, in that movie? Of course. 
I love the sheriff. Uh, the reason I love breaking yeah. the sheriff in half is two things. There's no blood, no guts. And you have to think about that. There is. So the gore is imaginary and everybody's imagination is a little different. But can you imagine breaking somebody's spine in half like that and just listen to the popping of the chicken bones? I just think that's nice. Yeah, it's it was so good. And you mentioned the Alice Cooper thing too. And the single that was written for the movie, He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask. I've read that obviously if you watch the music video, it's kind of spliced in with scenes from the movie and stuff, but you also film the new content. And so for you to get back in that character, was that something the studio's like, here, here's extra money to put the stuff back on? And because that I assume that was filmed after the movie already came out. Yes, and you know, it's interesting. You got to remember 1986, um, MTV had only been out for a year or two. I think 84 yeah. came out. Don't hold me to that, 84, 85. So this is 1986. And don't forget, John, Top Gun was the number one movie in 1986. So, you know, it's a different era than today. Uh, yes. But I will tell you, you know, every time you do something to that magnitude, they, unfortunately or fortunately for us, they, you do get paid. Um, you know, I'm in part seven in the prologue, the beginning, they flash back and forth and they get credits in part seven. Uh, and they do have to pay you for that usage of film clips uh, from your movie. So I was born in 85 and it wasn't, I didn't get to watch this movie till uh, I'm going to say 92, 93, but it was the first time I remember seeing, and it, it boggles my mind still because I didn't understand how the entertainment industry works, but it's the first time seeing a movie character intermingling with a singer in a band that I was familiar with with my parents' cassette tapes and of no more Mr. Nice Guy and Poison, all that stuff. And it was just a really cool thing that I wish more movies and stuff and television did that today where that perfect juxtaposition of whether it's an iconic horror character and a metal band or whatever it is, I just thought it was so cool. And still to this day to have Alice Cooper part like you and him together, it's just so rad. And we do. You know, uh, six months ago, we did a convention together. In wardrobe, I put full wardrobe on, and Alice Cooper was sitting on his throne, of course, and we were doing photos with the fans. Um, you know, a true story, John. You know, in 70, 1973, uh, I'm 65, just so you know, as you kind of alluded to when you said you were born that early, 85. Um, anyway, I'm 65 years old, so you got to remember, my first concert just happened to be Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare, wow. in Washington back in 1973 when I was 16. So I always I was kind of amazed that, you know, in 87-ish, uh, 86, I get to go back and do a, a work with Alice Cooper. And to this day, I still get to see the gentleman uh, and get to do events with him and sign autographs with him. So I, to me, you just full circle. It's just kind of an honor. When you put that mask back on, I know you, you sometimes you do that too for the conventions, which is awesome. I've seen you talk about almost basically getting movie replica or stuff that looks just like the character. When you put that costume on, does any part of you just, I mean, you kind of alluded to where you kind of become Jason, but when, is it tough to switch on and off at those conventions when you put that out? Because it's such a protected and classic iconic character that only so many people can say they played that character. If you to be probably one of the better versions of it, does it ever get kind of like, like what's your preparation putting that mask on the first time? I've got about 20 minutes to get it on before I need to be out doing photos. So that's my preparation. Um, you know, interesting enough, um, I'm not real, I don't take ownership of it where I'm real uh, covered with it. I'm very proud every time 
a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a 60-year-old goes by me in a full wardrobe and they do that. They try to challenge me because I'll be sitting there as I am right now talking to a fan and they'll stand about 10 feet away and give me that look. And they're not going to say anything, but they're just going to try to stare me down from behind the mask. And I, you know, I love it. You know what? Like I said, you put that mask on, character just drops. I, I had a seven-year-old come up to me this past weekend when I did an event and no exaggeration in wardrobe wouldn't say a word wanted an autograph mom had to tell me everything that had to be put on the mask or excuse me onto the photograph finally i said okay well can you take the mask off now so we can talk and once he took the mask off he started smiling and talking he was all excited but when he had that mask on it's awesome so just awesome so the, the idea I, I, what I really love about this, you've kind of touched upon like the integrity and honesty. And I think it's something that's totally lacking in the entertainment industry. But your friendship with Kane Hodder, and I know there's a lot of not, I'm not going to say drama because I've had Ken Kersinger on the show and every, we, we, we talked about all this. But I love the fact that when it came time to Freddy vs. Jason, you were kind of offered the role, I guess, to play Jason again, but you said no out of your friendship to Kane. And I know you two are friends and the, you guys are always playing jokes to each other, but I love that, reading that, seeing that, that in this industry, you could still value your friendship over a potential career move and stuff like that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I know both Ken, and Ken is a great guy. Don't take it wrong. Uh, he took the role, and if you didn't know this, um, one of the reasons um, that I was – I was approached, I was called by management of, an, do you have an interest? And, and like I said, well, what's wrong with Kane? Why aren't you going to use Kane? And they didn't really have a solid answer, except they wanted a bigger Jason in so many words. And at the time I was chief operating officer, general manager uh, of one uh, Thunder Valley Casino Resort up in Northern California. You know, you got to realize to quit a job of that magnitude and go do a film for eight weeks, uh, there's a, a, a big flag difference in payroll. <laughs> You know, and then I wouldn't be with a job. So one of the reasons was, of course, like I said earlier, you know, I always used money as a reason to look to do something. Uh, but also, they were looking for a big guy. And once they said they weren't going to use Kane, uh, the reason they used Ken, and I didn't know this, but I do know Ken well. We talked. Um, they wanted somebody big. And I did a photo op with Ken, and he was huge. And I looked at him and said, how big are you? I said, I thought you were 6'6". Six, six. I'm 6'3". Six, how can you be so big? Well, they also put Ken in a two-inch platform to make him 6'8". Oh. Ken told me this personally, so I'm not, I'm regurgitating right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I had no idea that they'd put him in a platform, and that's why he was so big. Um, that was one of the things we were trying to do. You know, Robert England, great guy. He's a normal-sized human being, like Tom Cruise. Yeah. You know, 5'8"-ish, 5'9". That's normal compared to somebody that's abstract like me or, or Ken. <laughs> Um, so that was one of the things, um, you know, and again, at the same time, it was like, I enjoy what I'm doing. I've got my positions. I'm at, I'm at the top of the mountain, so to speak, in my industry. Uh, just wait until you're ready to retire. And like I said earlier, I have retired now five years ago. In that time, I've had the pleasure of doing a couple of fan films, playing Elias Voorhees. Uh, I had the opportunity to do 13 Fanboy with D. Wallace, Kane Hodder, Corey Feldman. Um, and I have another opportunity coming up next week. I'll be doing a small film. I get to do some roles. And the nice thing about it now is it isn't about money. It's about fun. Uh, now that I'm retired, I can do these things and I can contribute to the film and not have to think I, I got to make a car payment or I got to make my rent or whatever. Right. I can try to help somebody else be as successful as I think I've been over the years and 
play it forward. One of the interesting, and I wish Highway to Hell became a series because your portrayal of Sergeant Bedlam is Hellcop. Like the I, the fact you were quite, you're a silent character there, you're badass. Like how fun was to play that character? How come that never came to be something bigger than it is? Because I think it's it's a cult classic. It was ready for a national release at the theater chains. Hemdale was the name of the company. Unfortunately, Hemdale bankruptcied about a week before the release. And in doing so, it went right to the shelf. It didn't even go to the VHS. It went to the shelf, sat there until about five years ago when United Artists, MGM, bought the library. So now it's available on DVD. Uh, I had some folks come to me about, oh, maybe three years ago from Germany and do an interview uh, at my house. And then they had it done and redid it and put it with captions in German. And it's become extremely popular. I still today have some of the original <laughs> posters that were supposed to be distributed to the- Oh, theater, wow. Uh, in the same box with Hemdale's name on it that they mailed me back in probably 1989, 1990. Um, and they're black and white. They're full-size posters for a theater, but they're black and white. For those of you who may not know, you know, Chad uh, Lowe, Rob Lowe's younger brother is in it. And you may know somebody named Ben Stiller. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Yeah. $20 million actor. He, um, he has about eight seconds, maybe nine seconds in it. His mom and dad are in it. His sister's in it. Uh, Christy Swanson, the original Buffy and the Vampire, she's in it. So it does have a cast of characters. It's such a you. It's such a interesting thing because, again, you play a character that's silent uh, and your actions speak for you. But I just thought it was so surreal. Like, at the time, I mean, it still is such an original idea. And again, like, it's... It's it's really cool. Like the you put up him next to Jason or Sergeant Bedlam, and you kind of like, man, like you almost want to see a story between those two because your portrayal obviously is so believable in this hulking guy that's just unstoppable. You know, and that's interesting. You put it that way because the the Jason and the Hell Cop squaring off, you know, um, is one of those that would be an interesting film. It's almost like when I did Vengeance squaring off with a gentleman named Jason Brooks who played Jason and me as the father. I mean, I grew a beard for four or five months. I had a long stringy wig on and, you know, we're in the same size category. So it's me squaring off with myself, so to speak, you know, 35 years ago. I'm wondering, when you, when you, when the, during the height of this and when Jason Lewis comes on, I think you're in the middle of, you got all the leprechauns, child's play, Hellraiser, everything going on at the time. Was there ever any active competition, not vocally, like not, I'm not talking like bad drama, but were you kind of like, oh, how about they kill or my kill's better? Like, I'm always curious, like when you guys are watching other directors and franchises are like, we get off the game here. Did that ever happen during Jason Lives? You know, I'm going to say no from my perspective. Uh, I'm not aware of any, but you know, if you go back, you know, the, the movies were different back then. And I mean, from the perspective, they were considered a B movie. And you have to remember, um, in 1986, uh, Top Gun, Tom Cruise. I'll give you an example. If I took a picture of Tom Cruise to India today, they've got about 1.4 billion people. I can assure you 90% of the people would say Tom Cruise. If you took a picture of C.J. Graham, like I look at you right now, they kind of shrug their shoulders like whatever. However, if you turn it over to a picture of Jason Voorhees, they'd all say Jason, Friday the 13th. Um, nobody really was picking up on the horror movies at that time, Leprechaun, et cetera, as they have today. Today, people have really relaxed. It's a conversation piece when you get to the copy machine or when you're emailing somebody 
and you put a little hashtag and a machete and blood on it and giggle, giggle, <laughs> people have really relaxed with it. I've had full bird colonels from the United States Air Force come up and get an autograph for me. And I would ask her what she did. She goes, well, I'm a colonel in the Air Force. I said, what are you going to do with the photos? She goes, I'm going to put it behind me on my desk in my office. Now, can you imagine walking into a colonel's office and she's got a picture of oh. Jay's photograph behind her? I mean, what a conversation piece. Well, it's cool. You're both veterans, too, though. So maybe she could sell it that way to her brass. Yeah. Have you ever, whenever you go out, say, with, you, with your family or whatever, do people recognize you today? And is it weird for you to they come up to you to be like, oh, my God, you're Jason? It does happen, unfortunately, or fortunately enough. Uh, you know, my community, a few people have seen me, and they remember. Uh, I go to a steakhouse downtown, uh, Texas Roadhouse. Uh, and I'll tell you, I've been there twice, three times, and every time I go in there, they seem to remember me. It's like, before you know it, you've got a half a dozen waiters or waitresses who want to get a picture with you while you're there. And they're really good about it, if you don't mind. Um, but at the same time, I've been to Universal Studios with my family when they were younger and had somebody go, hey, you played Jason. Uh, I was at TSA one time in line showing my ID coming through the airport in Atlanta. And the guy looked at my name and looked at me and goes, you guy to play Jason? I go, yeah. He goes, oh man, I love Jason. I said, well, do you know who Derek Mears is? He goes, yeah. I go, you see that guy back there in line? That's Derek. Derek, come up here, come up here. <laughs> Brings him to the front line to put us through TSA. I mean, they know the name, uh, but I am shocked how many people really look at you and go, you play Jason. The horror fans know your face. You know, they know the name, but a real horror fan knows exactly what you look like when you're walking around and they'll see you and they'll, they don't mind to bother you. The nice thing is you get to be incognito because of the hockey mask, you know, um, you don't have to be in a position where you're unfortunately bothered all the time because not everybody knows who you are. To kind of loop back to the, the military life, I know you were fortunate enough and you put the time in uh, when it came to the nightclub and pushing yourself through that. But say there's a, a kid or a guy or girl get out now and they don't, they, maybe they might not have the same opportunities you do, but they want to get into, say, acting or uh, a work on movie sets, television sets. Is there programs that the military helps people put through, whether it's maybe like Skillbridge, Department of Defense, or something like that? Like, what programs are out there for your experiences? issues with the VA or anything like that that kind of help out there now? You know, I won't say for the VA specifically, but I can tell you that if you wanted to get a stunts, there are stunt schools, special effects, there are special effects schools, uh, acting schools, drama schools. There are different productions you can get into. Most of your high schools have drama classes. And at the time when you're in high school, drama seems to be like, oh, that's kind of lame, right? But there are folks that take that drama very seriously and then they, they, they take it and turn it into a career or an acting. I, I can almost assure you there are some people that took drama in school and they probably were a little bit ranked on because they were doing drama and their paycheck is pretty heavy today. And others are going, Darsh, I thought I was going to do so good in football, but I should have been in drama. <laughs> um, so I don't know specifically VA, but what I, I always say it again, you know, luck is involved in things too. So I got lucky. You know, I, I was given a job, I delivered, I performed. To this day, I still have a due diligence to do things. Um, when I'm speaking with little people, for instance, first thing I ask them is, you know, what are you into? I mean, if you write codes, are you into school? Are you into basketball? Are you a brainiac? What is your thing? Because not everybody throws a football. Not everybody can spell real right. well. 
but I want to make sure I don't put them in a category. I have people come up that are in bands, 13 years old to play the drums. Really? Um, and then I say, hey, live it. Be sure you can take care of yourself. And I use the same thing I said earlier about 7-Eleven. I've told my kids, if, if you want to work there, great. If you're happy and you can support your family, great. So it's really about your dream, you know, what you want to do, not what I do. But I will tell you that there's nothing really impossible if you want. Um, running casino resorts, I did nothing but deal with numbers, statistics, algorithms, uh, everything with percentage margin. I had a $100 million payroll, over a $500 million revenue, a billion-dollar casino. Uh, brag, 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 right? However, at the end of the day, it was just a number. It had a few extra zeros on it compared to a normal restaurant. Everything was based on ratios, cost associated. And to me, it was just common sense. I mean that. I mean, right. I hired people that were smart too. They had MBAs and bachelor degrees and, uh, you know, CFOs. But at the end of the day, you know what? I knew my numbers. I knew my game. Um, I didn't go to college. Uh, but you know what? I'll go up against any CEO or COO in the casino industry today. And I feel very comfortable. I can compete, if not do better. If you were in your office and say Jason Voorhees walked in here with his resume, what are some positive you would be like, man, I really like your, like, what are some stuff you could, positive stuff you could take off Jason that would be successful in the casino industry? Well, number one, he's had a tough life. He's still standing up tall. And I respect that heavily coming from my own life. Um, you know, not having a father, I remember people used to say, well, what's that like not having a dad? I don't know. I never had one. <laughs> it's, I mean, I didn't know how to answer the oh, question. Well, interesting. Kid, you know, um, and then, of course, when I was younger in school, I used to get a little bit laughed at because I didn't have a father. In my era, it was a little different. Everybody just expected you had a mom and a dad. Uh, but that's not life changing either or. It's still what you decide. In my case, I looked at something like the military. It gave me a stabilization. Um, you know, running these casino resorts, John, I've always used three words with my executives. And I've been to a few colleges and taught some classes for the professors. Even though I didn't have a college degree, they'd come in, they, I would come in as a guest speaker. And I'd say, you know, I have a college degree. And they go, no, no, we want you because you have experience in business. I used to tell everybody three things, qualify, quantify, simplify. Think about it. So right. use those three words, uh, you know, qualify. Well, think about it. That's blue sky in what's going to work, what's not going to work. Quantify, qualify. Qualify means you got to put an ROI on it, return on the investment. Does it make sense? And then simplify. Don't make it complicated. If you're the only person in the room that understands the mission, problem is nobody's going to help you get there. You're going to do it all by yourself and you're going to work really hard. <laughs> qualify, quantify, simplify with your retirement from the that industry, have you picked up any new hobbies or like what is you mentioned you fell off you can fall off your horse and stuff like that, but what other stuff do you do to kind of keep saying out here? You know, when I retired five years ago, the main thing I did was I was I was fortunate, I bought a piece of land. I have a, a ranch in Montana. So I have horses, you know, I have some alpacas and beehives. Nice. And that's me. Uh I go I do a convention now and then, I do a film now and then. Um I enjoy it. You know, like I said earlier, uh, my horses, they're fun. I've got one called Desperado. He's 15.3 hands. He's black and white with blue eyes like a husband. Wow. Uh, but I'll be honest, last time I got in, on him, which was like four years ago, he put me into the fence. So I kind of don't get on him anymore because I don't tuck and roll very well. But I've got a Palomino cashmere. I get on her all the time. And my wife has a lady, Sedona, that she has beautiful red horse. So that's my thing now, you know, I'm fortunate enough that 
uh, I can do a convention now and then. I can meet bands now and then. Uh, you know, fun thing I did back here in November, November 10th, 2021 was the 246 years of the Marines, technically on November 11th. But on November 10th, right. I went down to the military post and down outside uh, San Diego and signed autographs complimentary for the Marines. Uh, did selfies and all that different things just to say thank you for their service. So those are the cool things I get to do now, fun things I get to do, uh, or shop with a cop, go in town and make a donation so they can get some presents for, for Christmas and stuff. So you heard me say it earlier, um, you know, play it forward where you can. And um, I'm able to do a little bit and I just continue to move forward. No, it's awesome. And I think it was, you just celebrated the 35th anniversary, I believe, of Jason Lives too. It just, again, it's just crazy that that is still, it just blows my mind. It's so cool that you can still be going to these conventions dressed as your version of Jason and the reception. And it's just so cool that as the world's opening up again now, that fans get the chance to meet you and talk to you. And it's just so, you never, when you look at someone, you look at someone that looks like they go to a church or a doctor. It's like the big, they're the biggest fans, Jason Voorhees. Or it's just so cool that the horror community, you look at someone, you just don't know. It, it could be anyone. And I, I love the fact that it's just, it's, it's just really awesome. Yeah. You know, the, like I said, you know, I'm still 6'3", 250. So when I put the wardrobe on character reference wise is <laughs> side by side, you wouldn't know the difference. I mean, I'm fortunate that I'd maintain size structure. Uh, again, when I ran casino resorts, for instance, I always wear a suit and tie. Um, that meant long sleeves, jackets, and nobody knew I had all these tattoos. No, it was just okay that's the boss that's the guy in the suit and tie uh but if they saw me down the street riding I have a, a, a motorcycle they saw me riding my motorcycle or my chopper uh with tats they wouldn't know what to do because occasionally they'd run into me at gold's gym and just like mr cj i go no it's just cj very much i didn't know he had all those tattoos yeah, i got a few tattoos wow how did you get that one and then all of a sudden you're breaking through barriers with your team and like I said earlier, if you can find something with a young person, a commonality, uh, I don't care if they write codes for computers or if they play basketball or if they can spell really well, um, that's breaking through each individual. And that person now becomes a different perspective when they look at you because they have something in common with you and they think that's cool. And it makes them feel much more at ease with you when they walk up to you and want to have a conversation. It's well, sixty. My mom works. Uh, she's she works at a school with lots of special needs kids and with learning disability type things. And one of the kids, it is funny. Last week she just told me about this. One of the kids brought up to her, "Have you seen the movie Lost Boys?" And of course, my mom, like I grew up watching, it, and she sang the song, "Cry Little Sister." And that connection she made with this kid, he's able to listen to her now in classroom focuses gets the job done all because they have that shared mutual connection of the lost boys and it's you laugh at it from the outside you're like man it's so weird but then what you just said is create that commonality between two people and look how much more you can get done once you once you're on the same page like that and that's the nice thing about you know your mom and i being a little older you know um we have experiences life experiences so there's most people i can have a conversation with I don't care if you want to talk about motorcycles. I don't care if you want to talk about businesses, making wine, uh, working on a, a Corvette, working on a, a Chevy 350. I can talk to you enough about it, putting in the plugs, changing the timing, and have a conversation. People that want to talk about bands, I had a young man, he was 13, 
plays in a band. He's a drummer, brought me a picture of him drumming. And the first thing I started saying, have you ever heard of a song called Inagata de Vida? Now it's from 1968, <laughs> but you got to listen to it. It was the first time a drummer did a six or seven minute solo. Next time he came in a year later, he had went and listened on his phone, of course, to Inagata de Vida. And he goes, oh man, I've almost got it down to a perfect replica. Um, well, that was our connectivity outside of just the Jason factor. But when you start talking to them and, and again, you know, if you're a veteran, you know, uh, why you're in the, what are you doing in the military? I have uh, veterans that come up and their friends are overseas. And what I'll always do is throw a quick video, uh, a, you know, a quick cameo to their buddies and their friends uh, overseas, you know, obviously tell them to take care of themselves, be safe and get home. But at the same time, make sure to tell them, that, hey, just remember, you know, Jason's here and I was a sergeant in the infantry, don't forget. Um, and they kind of just, they'll giggle, but they enjoy it because now, hey, did you know Jason's a veteran? And that's their connectivity. No, I love it. Uh, this has been awesome, Jason. And I know you have a website, but if people want to reach out to you, are you on social media? If people want to get, say, a signed picture or maybe there's a promoter out there that wants to book you for a convention, like, do they all go to your website? They can just take it to the website. The interesting thing about my website, it's pretty simple. It's the last page is even a mailing address for people that want to mail me stuff uh, of their own to be signed. And then of course you can buy all your pictures and stuff on it. There's a contact website. So people are able to find me reasonably well. Um, these fingerprints are everywhere. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, like I told you earlier, you know, if they want to reach out, give me a shout. You know, I've got a couple events this year. In fact, this coming uh, week here, I'll be down at an event. I was just at an event last week and I, I have an opportunity to just do a few, not too many, because I don't want to wear my welcome out, of course. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, I do have responsibilities and don't don't laugh. But when we leave this conversation, I'll be putting my cowboy boots on and out there shoveling stables to clean them out because I got three horses. I love in it. Field. I love it. Well, hopefully you don't get knocked off and you can do that little tuck and roll there and get out of there safely. Yeah, trust me. I've had them step on my foot a couple of times. It's about a six month recovery for my foot. They're big. Oh, so uh, thank you, CJ, for your time. Thank you for this. I wish you all the success and uh, be safe and uh, have some fun out there. Thank you so much. Hey, tell the, the fans, you guys, you, the, the, I call it the uh, franchise, the legion of Jason fans. I, and I speak for all the Jasons and stuff. Thank you for being fans. Uh, you know, we're hoping something comes out soon. Uh, we'll see what happens. Everything that, from a legality perspective, I understand legally has been settled. Uh, and we'll see where uh, Mr. Miller goes with his opportunities to see if we can get one out there for the fans. But thank you, everybody, and I appreciate you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the Chop Fit. Over the course of the past year, the Chop Fit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your chocolate order. It'll change your life. Thank you.
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. 